0: Hi, this is Red Femme. This is an extra episode this week because we missed last week's and I promised that we would have,
1: you know, we'd compensate you.
0: Yes, we would do two on Apple and Spotify this week.
1: We'd make you whole, so to speak.
0: Right, (laughs) because I'm sure people were really missing it.
1: You never know, you don't, you don't know.
0: Mm -hmm. So anyway, I tweeted it, so we're gonna do it. And the extra episode on Apple and Spotify are getting this week is on genocide. <laughs> so it's it's been worth the wait. Is it not a politicide as yeah. opposed to a genocide? There is some discussion about that. It's on the Cambodian genocide, which is discussed because it was Cambodians killing Cambodians. There is some discussion about whether it should better be called politicide but I think because people don't really know that term, it gets lumped in with genocide.
1: Yeah, and like politicized. Politicized would also be like the killing of the communists in Indonesia. Several tens of thousands died. Also killing commun- It's usually communists. Um, and killing the killing of communists in Latin America.
0: It's usually communists being killed. But in this case, doing the killing. Mm, yes. So, or people g- who call themselves communists. I guess w- we can get into that Well, we'll today. get to that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the reason we're talking about it is I recently travelled in Cambodia and it was a really wonderful country, I have to say. Absolutely beautiful. The people there were incredibly like friendly and willing to kind of have conversations about politics and history. Phnom Penh, where I was at night, was a little bit seedy, but it was OK during the day. It was absolutely great. And at night it wasn't too bad Like you didn't feel unsafe or anything. And it's not a very big country, actually, so I need to go back and explore more of it. But I have to recommend it to people. The food is amazing. The people are really nice. There's no kind of dodgy dealings or people wouldn't even take my change. Wouldn't I? I would try and just leave them with some change in a shop.
1: And you went to something that lesbian separatists would be
0: interested to hear
1: about, maybe? You went to like a...
0: Oh, I went to an, a Buddhist nun's village. Yeah. Which has lots of women living together. Yeah. And it seemed great. Yeah, they seem so happy Yeah, I think in the videos you showed me. I think they're pretty happy. They have really nice housing and then they all live around this really, again, like captivatingly beautiful lake. And then they have their own little market and there's cats everywhere. And I just thought, well, if I was a Cambodian woman, there's a big chance I would have come here. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. You've got to buy into the Buddhist philosophy, though. I'm not sure I do.
1: What about Detachment.
0: I'm okay. I see the I see the point of detachment. It's more like if you extend it so far, it can just become really nihilistic.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: And I know the whole Buddhist thing of like, what is it? All of life is suffering. blah, blah. Desire brings suffering. Yeah, but it also brings good things. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't know if I can give up so many things and live with attachment or not caring about things, really. But anyhow, it's nothing to do with God. They just have a... They just really like the Buddhist philosophy. Yeah. And they don't wonder who created the world. I think
1: it's much more of a worldview or philosophy than a religion,
0: to be honest. And a bit of a lifestyle. Yeah. Depending on how much you get into it. So anyway, yeah, Cambodia, one of the best places I've been in Southeast Asia, if not the best Mm. So I would definitely, it's very easy to get around. Everything's inexpensive, but also good. right? Um, Just really, really nice. Similar to Vietnam, but different. Vietnam's also great. So anyways, part of that, I visited the, what they call the killing fields, because I wanted to understand the Cambodian genocide, because it was done by a a communist group. And I just thought, this is so bonkers. Yeah. Like, what happened? And we'll regale the history a little bit that led up to it. So Cambodia was colonised by the French. In the 1950s, it was effectively kind of handed over to... Well, the king of Cambodia negotiated the French leaving. Right. And to still try and have, like, a good relationship, whatever. And, of course, this was happening globally. Right. Yeah. So this wasn't out of step with the rest of the world. And then as things proceeded, his I think the old king it was like his son was uh, had just become king. And then he decided he wanted to be prime minister instead. He kind of just declared himself prime minister and won the election with 100 percent of the vote. <laughs> so not that, yeah, it's it's not a democracy. That was something I also found out. Yeah, because they do have elections, but the ruling party wins by ninety five percent, and the opposition gets put in prison after. Right. So, it's it's still like that, unfortunately. Anyway, um, and so I think it was called what? What's his name? We just looked it up. It was Shinanok. Yes, Shinanok. Shinanok. Yeah. So this guy. King slash Prime Minister guy. King slash Prime Minister ruled from the 1950s onwards. And then, of course, in the 1960s, Vietnam was being bombed by America. There was the American invasion in Vietnam. And Cambodia, as it's a neighbor, started to support the Vietnamese. And that also involved allowing Vietnamese soldiers to use Cambodia as a base. Yeah, and when I say soldiers, I mean the Americans were defeated by grandmothers, teenagers, and farmers. Yeah,
1: they fought until every last American
0: was out of their country. When we say soldiers, these people weren't soldiers. Mm. Similar to Cambodia, it didn't have an army for a long time, which is why it was easily colonized. Vietnam didn't really have an army in the sense that we would think of one. Right. So it was ordinary people defending their country. Yeah, with what they had yeah which was really guns more than any kind of weapons that we'd associate with the mili- with military might today yeah so during this time the king weirdly enough started trying to have a relationship with the americans sort of to appease them but in any case richard nixon ordered the bombing of cambodia and it was mainly henry kissinger that was in charge of organizing this yes and Half, I was told when I was there, half a million Cambodians were killed. Yeah, The estimates by the Americans are hundreds of thousands. Yes. So somewhere between those figures. At that point, a lot of the infrastructure, of course, of Cambodia was destroyed. The place was in chaos. And already there was a group called the Communist Party of Cambodia, yeah. which was the a particular name for Cambodia, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, was already kind of having a civil war with the government. Yeah. Then whilst this king slash prime minister was out of the country, there was a military coup. Supported by the US. Supported by the US.
1: Because they were upset at king slash prime minister for allowing the Vietnamese...
0: To have ever...
1: The Viet Cong to, yeah.
0: To have ever uh, been allowed to use parts of Cambodia to organise and and whatnot. So whilst he was out of the country, he was sort of, yeah, overthrown, this king slash prime minister, saw exile in China. And from there, he sort of then decided to have an alliance with the Communist Party of Cambodia, who he had been fighting a civil war with. Yeah, But they decided to align themselves against the military who had taken power. And in 1975... Basically, the country was really chaotic. A lot of the infrastructure had been destroyed by the Americans. There was a military coup that was considered illegitimate. And all this time, uh, the Communist Party of Cambodia that were now going by the name the Khmer Rouge. Mm-hmm. So this is essentially it means Red Cambodia. The right. Khmers are is the Cambodian ethnicity. Yes, they're ninety five percent of the society. Five percent are Chinese Vietnamese. Yeah, migrants. So they were called the Khmer Rouge, and of course, red for communism. And they then overthrew the military, which was not very difficult in 1975. And they just rode into cities with wagons armed. But the process—I'll go back to this—is that over a number of decades they'd been building a kind of peasant army, yeah, or an or, or a peasant militia, mm. and. This was led by a guy called Sal Salazar. Salazar, that's it. it was led by Salazar, who's known to us as Paul Pot. That was his revolutionary pseudonym. Paul Pot's vision was not really of a communist society in the classic way. He kind of supplanted the idea of the working class taking power as peasants taking power because the vast majority of Cambodians were peasants. Yeah. So he must have thought, well, this isn't going to work. They're not the majority class. Mm. And in fact, these are the people, because so much of Cambodia was feudal essentially then, those were the people producing things. But of course, being a peasant, as we always are talking about in socialism, is a very different experience, much more individualistic yeah than being a member of the working class going to work with other people having this kind of a collective experience of being in the conditions together and basically this is why anarchism is very popular among peasants this is one of the explanations Mm. because it's really individualistic you either own your land or you certainly own everything that you're doing like in terms of your tools and working right whereas when you're a worker you're alienated from your work mm-hmm. and you're being exploited in a, in a very different way yes. than just handing over what you produce on some land to the landowner or the local feudal lord or whoever. And to tell Paul Potts' history a bit, he was born to actually an upper middle-class background. His dad was a landowner. He was a land owning peasant. Which is a bit of an oxymoron. Exactly. But he was a peasant that owned a lot of land and also worked on it as a peasant and had lots of peasants working on it. because so he was from a wealthy background for that kind of society. Yeah, And so he went to a good school. He apparently wasn't very interested in academics and was more interested in like sport. So he didn't pass his exams, but he then got into an elite university anyway because of his background. And then he was even selected by the French when they kind of knew that they would be handing over at a certain point mm. that that era, that particular era of colonialism was coming to an end. He was selected to go to Paris and do some sort of course there. And, of course, be inculcated in French culture, the language, the values. And it was all this idea that the future elite would be able to continue a good relationship with France because they'd been there. Right. Whilst he was there, he attended a Marxist reading group called the Chimer Rouge. Yes. This is where the name comes from. And from the documentaries I've watched since I visited the Killing Fields, basically, he does admit, and these documentaries were not socialist or sympathetic at all. It's known that he said, I didn't really understand Marx. Yeah. He wasn't, I don't think he was smart enough to really get it. It's not like he just thought something different or opposed it. He just didn't really understand it.
1: And he must have just thought, well, the peasants are the biggest class. They're the most important class. They should be the class in power.
0: Yeah, and he did things differently to Mao in that Mao thought, oh, in China, peasants are the biggest class. We need to industrialise and make them workers. That's right, yeah. But because his father was a peasant, my guess is that he just envisioned a society that was ruled essentially by men like his father. Yeah. And men like him. Mm -hmm. So he managed to bring a lot of the illiterate peasants with him and build and build and build, especially amongst teenagers, So the average age in Cambodia at the time was 15 and you could join the Khmer Rouge as like a fully fledged gun wielding sort of soldier from 12. Right. So he recruited heavily children, teenagers Mm. who adopted these basically sort of mad ideas he had about the idea that Cambodia could be a fully self-sustaining sovereign nation. Yeah, and it was sort of deeply xenophobic. So everyone, Chinese or Vietnamese, was murdered.
1: And my understanding is that they're not migrants, that there are, like, are Chinese-Vietnamese people, so, so people with Chinese ethnicity who have been there for several generations. Yeah. So I imagine it's a similar thing.
0: Well, I mean, they were Cambodians in all but technical yeah. ethnicity. Yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of xenophobic and weird and then isolationist. And so they rolled into the cities, took them over. Everyone who's a soldier, a police officer, a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, a nurse, were they were arrested. Mm. Thousands of them were just killed.
1: It's also just like anti-intellectualism, isn't it?
0: Yes. And I think that's partly that he didn't do very well at school. Yeah. And maybe really resented that. But also, if you want to be a dictator the best thing I guess you can do is get rid of the people who could challenge your ideas. Yes. So one of the tests they would do was as to whether you should be arrested and probably killed was how good your writing, how good your literacy skills were. Yeah. So on the way to the airport, I was speaking to my taxi driver who said that his mom survived even though she was a teacher because when she filled in the exam, mm. the the test they gave to see how educated you were, she misspelled things on purpose and she misread things on purpose. And she just said that she was a cleaner in that's where she lived in the cities. So this was also about playing on the resentment of incredibly poor rural peasants and the imagined idea of a bourgeois elite in cities. Right. As if teachers and doctors are like living the high life, Mm. but probably compared to the people living in like swamp conditions in the countryside, they could, they might well think that. Yeah. Like, but you have a, a concrete house, whereas I live in a wooden shack. Right. So kind of played on these class resentments, really, between peasants and workers. And and there wasn't really a ruling class to overthrow, right? It was just the military. Yeah. The king was gone. Mm. There wasn't anyone that was particularly rich.
1: And the French, I imagine, had the place of the aristocracy, yeah. For a long time. There wouldn't be, like, a naturalised Cambodian aristocracy.
0: Other than literally just the king and his family.
1: Yeah.
0: Not that I could tell. And the French had left 20 years earlier. Yeah. So uh, so one of the tests was that whether they would touch your hands, and it was whether you had soft hands. This mm-hmm. was another thing that would get you thrown in prison, because it would show that you... weren't a labourer. Yeah,
1: weren't a a land labourer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: So I would have been fucked.
1: (laughs) My eczema saves the day.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's quite incredible. Like, the genocide museum there is just this place called S21. And it's a former school that they turned into a prison, but really a kind of killing and torture centre. And 20,000 people from the capital teachers, police, um, doctors, lawyers, nurses. So the healthcare system collapsed. The education system collapsed. Because anybody who had that kind of a role in authority in terms of like the upkeep of society was just arrested. But at S21, 20,000 people went in and literally seven adults and five children survived. Wow. Wow. They were the only survivors. And it's... Honestly, it seemed very like the Holocaust, apart from it wasn't industrial in its method of murder. Mm. So people were sent to effectively concentration camps in terms of concentrating labour. So they took people who were workers, postmen, I don't know what the equivalent of an office worker was then, but like... Yeah, the bank teller, civil servants. civil servants, any anyone really that had a job in the city that wasn't just a street sweeper. Uh, they were sent to a network of hundreds of prisons. But part of that was you would work on sort of big rice. I think we'd call them rice patties, or like rice yeah. farms. And Pol Pot said to increase the number of rice production by like three which was just really impossible. So a lot of people were to death. It also doesn't really make sense to have people who don't know how to farm suddenly in charge of tripling the rice production when they would struggle to do that at all. But yeah, if you didn't produce enough rice, you were shot or whatever. And then attached to these labour camp prison complexes there were hundreds of the these places where I went that were execution centres, and it was just kind of fields out in the middle of nowhere. And similar to the Nazis, they decided that bullets were too expensive
1: mm. and
0: people were beaten to death. Wow. Sometimes they had their throats slit with bamboo, mm. um, like bamboo leaves. Wow. These particular leaves that I saw when I was going around, and then people were just buried under the... Earth, like mass graves, wow, and when I was there, because of the way that Cambodia is like it's just very swampy and wet, and I guess they weren't buried deep enough, all of the ground was uneven, so you could see these mass graves, and then every time it floods or every time there's rain, things emerge
1: wow, so
0: when I walked around, you could see, and it told you on like the audio, like you might be able to see things like bits of bone teeth, clothing. I saw clothing. Mm. And this is from then. And every month the staff go around and collect it. Wow. Yeah, the place that I went, there were hundreds of those. And people were told, are you being transferred to another prison? And then when they arrived... There was like, you know, like political revolutionary music blasted. Mm. And they also had a drill going. So the idea was that you couldn't hear the people on the bus in front of you being executed. Wow. So even though you're blindfolded, it was the idea that you wouldn't know you were going to die until you were just about to die. So you couldn't do anything about it. Wow. And yeah, it was just, I mean, Pol Pot was just kind of. I mean, obviously crazy, but he really had this idea of like this visionary future that he'd come up with that was sort of cobbled, sort of Cambodian-esque communism, this idea of a peasant-run society, and the ruling class was to them the working class, and they need to be gotten rid of. Yeah. Because they were of a better status than you. And it was in that, you know, he would say things like, So the reason that, you know, two million Cambodians were killed out of eight millions that's one in four people is that if one person say in a family was killed for being a doctor they then he, he had this saying where he said to really kill the grass you have to pull up the roots you had to kill everyone in a family if you needed to kill one in order to ensure there was no one that took revenge in the future right so like at this place that I went, there was this tree where babies were killed.
1: Wow. Like,
0: I won't say how they were killed, but it was just, like, babies. And there wasn't even the thought of, like... Because a lot of the time, the schools then became essentially indoctrination centres.
1: Yeah.
0: So you would... they were, the Kids were taught basic literacy and maths, and then it was just sort of politics. And Pol Pot's vision of this fully
1: agrarian peasant society
0: yeah self-sustained society that didn't need to trade with anyone else didn't need to and and you know people would object and he'd say weird things to his followers like the wheel of history must be turned like it was it was cultish the way that i saw it was that there was a cult that enjoyed a lot of popularity because communists it branded itself as communist
1: and also, when the US goes in and kills thousands of people with a bombing campaign in a war that has nothing to do with you, and you have all this political instability that comes from that, people, I think, are traumatised and looking for a way forward. Like, how do we prevent this from happening in the future?
0: Well, and the Khmer Rouge were the only ones who opposed it consistently.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: So... I think they then sort of riffed off the fact that communism was very popular in that part of the world. Mm. Vietnam is full of communists. And people, maybe because it was a majority illiterate society, couldn't exactly go and check, is this really the working class taking power? No, I don't think so. And it was just sort of, yeah, I mean, it's even that thing of recruiting teenagers, it seems almost like grooming young people yeah in quite a big way like teenagers were even taught to like murder their own families wow in order to have this perfect society in the future as if it was worth it if you just killed all of the bad people which was the working class wow and in the end there were lots of splits in the Khmer rouge a lot of people became disenchanted and disaffected as you might yeah And they fled to Vietnam and told the Vietnamese what was going on. And then the Vietnamese invaded. And and ended it. And quite easily overthrew the Khmer Rouge. And Pol Pot fled to the jungle and lived there until 1998, when he naturally died. Wow. Surrounded by his supporters. I was very surprised that no one assassinated him. And apparently he was under so-called house arrest and meant to be put on trial soon for what he did. But this was 20 years on. And incredibly, because Vietnam, an actually communist country in some sense, was against the Khmer Rouge, the Khmer Rouge was supported by the West Mm. and the powers that be. And in fact, the UN gave them a seat until the 90s. Wow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So threatening is real communism. Yeah.
0: I guess so, but... I mean, I think people also didn't know. So the Khmer Rouge were supported for a long time by China because they just thought, oh, right, Red Cambodia sounds socialist. It's not like people knew for a long time what was going on because they they didn't let anyone leave the country. There was no access in or out apart Mm. from diplomats and all of the information and media was controlled. It was only when deserters from the Khmer Rouge fled and said to the Vietnamese authorities... People are being killed en masse. Mm. You have to invade. yeah. And the taxi driver that I had, he said that everyone in his father's family was killed apart from his dad because they didn't flee to Vietnam, whereas his mother and everyone her family fled to Vietnam, so they were fine. And I said, you know, what were the circumstances? And he said, well, my grandfather was a farmer and the Khmer Rouge just wanted his farm. So they just wow. killed they just killed him, and that was that, and took his land, Wow, so it was totally kind of ruthless and deadly, and even foreigners that were in the country at the time, for whatever reason, I was reading about some Australians were killed at the killing fields that I was at, and uh yeah, I mean, it made me think about a cult that enjoys then popularity mm. and has this kind of hodgepodge of ideas where you say, yes, we're communist, but we're Cambodian, we're different kinds of communists because Cambodia is not industrialized and whatnot. And then the way that popular support, when there has been chaos and there isn't, there's an unstable country of which there is no one really to overthrow very much. Well, this is what U.S. intervention does
1: to places. It's exactly what it did to the Middle East, which is destabilize it to such the point that these crackpot groups, um, filled with crazy people with fringe ideas, can take control. It's exactly what's happened with ISIS. Yeah. And the only people who stopped ISIS really um, was Iran. Yeah. The the what, say what you want about Iran. Obviously, we're feminist and quite against Iran, but opposition to US imperialism is often what kicks out these crazy crackpot groups.
0: And it was the general that America assassinated that united the Iraqis and Iranians against ISIS. What was his name?
1: Um Suleimani. Yeah. And he was killed along with the Iraqi general, Mohandas.
0: Yeah. Who had combined defeated ISIS. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's why he's a, he's a hero in the region, even in Iraq. He's a hero. Mm. Say what you... and And... They asked, what did he do that was so important? Um, And he said it wasn't even the military strategy and power and training. But what he did was ideologically appeal to soldiers and said, these people are Sunni extremists. They're Wahhabists. They want to make your town, your village, everything like Saudi Arabia. They don't believe that Shias and Sunnis should live together. They don't believe that Christians and Sunnis and Jews should live together. Because um, there are there is Jewish representation in the Iranian there, parliament.
0: There's a hundred thousand Jews in Iran. They have representation.
1: So he's like, they want to destroy your way of life, and they want to just make it Saudi, and and this Wahhabist extremism. And this was very convincing to the soldiers who were being a a, lot, a large. If you talk to people in Iraq and um, in Syria and places where ISIS got a foothold, some of them did believe the propaganda, and they thought, oh wow, this is going to be like a really beautiful like Islamist society. It's going to be like perfect religion. It's going to be. And what um, Suleimani did was appeal to their, give them an ideological reason to fight ISIS, which didn't really exist before. ISIS
0: were paying people. Yeah. I remember reading some interviews with ISIS soldiers that were like, oh, I'm just being paid like $2 a day. So that's a lot for me. Yeah. So they paid some men there to join.
1: I think in the early days, some people got convinced.
0: That of course, it would be a good
1: thing. Of basically, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. No, this lot were like peasant ISIS.
1: Yeah, that's what it sounds. That's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. But this is what happens when you imagine if you you know in the UK, in Canada, in Australia, and any in the US that your government. How much do you rely on the state? Even if you're an independent working person, the roads, the the schools, the post office, whatever. All of that infrastructure is destroyed. All of the existence, all of the bits of the state that you rely on to get on in life are destroyed. How destabilizing that is to the people who live there. You start to think, oh, my God, I would do anything to prevent this. Any kind of crackpot idea, any kind of weird thing, as long as we get some stability back. Because having a state is better than not having a state, objectively, no matter what that state is.
0: Well, um, and Pol Pot, I think he did that thing that, again, cults do and, and they talk about even like abusive partners do where they mm-hmm. say, like, how you get someone, how you manipulate someone is you say, like, everything will be perfect if you just do this. yeah, And actually things will be perfect. You have to do one more thing. Yeah. So, for example, they just killed all the old people
1: mm-hmm. because
0: they were like, he had this line where he said, uh, to to keep you is no profit, to kill you, no loss. So that was it. Right. You don't contribute to society. You represent the old society. So why shouldn't you just be dead? Yeah. And I think that he kept painting this vision of, but we're going to have a perfect society. It's just that at least one in four people can't be in it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's also like how cults prey on teenagers.
0: The majority
1: of them were teenagers.
0: And even... Of the soldiers
1: garden variety cults it's often teen people in their late teens because in western society that's when teenagers leave the family home and it's i think for political cults in particular it's about control in the future and it's about continuity
0: he did arrange marriages between mm. teenagers in villages that were affiliated with Khmer Rouge because he said you need to get married and have children that we can essentially indoctrinate into the new society yeah so there was mass arranged marriages by him. Wow. Or by the, they called it the organisation. And everything was about being subordinate to the organisation. So they killed all the Buddhists that they could mm. find. Because, of course, Buddhists have their own thing that is number one in their lives, their philosophy. And therefore, it's not helpful to the organisation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> it's also this male sorry i'm not mean to shoehorn feminism in but there is a real male impulse of wanting to systematize everything it it's not even just enough to systematize everything it's to understand things through one system yeah this is the amount of male and i've even seen some women infected by this through men i don't i I don't believe women would arrive here naturally. I think it's a much more of a, not that I believe in natural gender roles, but you see what I'm saying, um, without, inf- without influence. But who, if you were to bring an example of human suffering of some variety, they would come up with some cockamamie way in which communism would solve it and you're like oh but a kid losing their mother being run over by a car and, or a freak accident the, mom, the 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 mother dies and the kid is sad they will find a way to resolve that child's sadness through communism anything and any pathology can be um drawn back to to capitalism yeah. i think i maybe i've given this example before in the podcast but i was having a debate with a friend um all communists at this dinner party. And I was having a debate with a friend about a particular therapy for autism called applied behavioral analysis. It's a very controversial kind of therapy because it involves, um, it's very controversial kind of therapy because it involves punishing bad behavior, encouraging good behavior. Yeah, so it involves, nowadays it's much more about promoting good behavior than it is punishing. However, it's controversial in autism circles. But people who are in favor of it say, well, this is the one thing that really works very well. So if you have a nonverbal kid, they could become verbal. You know, it's an ethical dilemma.
0: Because it distresses the children.
1: Because it distresses the children. It has a history of being quite abusive. It's a valid debate. It's a, it's a debate to be had. Anyway, I was having this discussion with a friend. And this woman who was there is calling this woman. And she just said, oh, but it's capitalism's the problem. <laughs> and I just looked at her and I said... How? Yeah, like, How? And she just kind of looked at me completely blankly. And I said, well, in a communist society, and we had to fund a therapy for autism, surely we'd have to have a discussion about what that therapy would be. But like, what do you mean? But, but are you saying there's some capitalist ideology in in uh, applied behavioral analysis? Or is there... Um, commun- or or it would be against it would be capitalist. Or the, there,
0: there won't be kids with autism on the communism. Yeah, oh,
1: yeah like what... I, I couldn't... I could, and it's ju- it's that pathology of everything can can be resolved through an understanding of some things through a single system.
0: But what's strange is that I've had similar conversations where I've said, "No, sorry, communism won't solve all the problems in the world." If a four-year-old, if a four-year-old's mum gets run over, yeah, that four-year-old loses their main attachment object. The world has died that child will be affected by that for the rest of their lives. They just say, oh, yeah, but if we had the proper state, then the state will be, will look after the child properly. It's like, that's not nothing to do with attachment. Mm. Just admit that attachment is part of psychology and this is another field. And if you want to link them, you could say, well, in a ideal utopian communism, we would be able to have the best possible care for that child And we would have great doctors, that understood attachment, and they would then, you know, make the right decisions about placing them with their secondary primary object so that, you know, if they'd lost the first, they've got the second and so on, so on. Like you could make the connection, but they don't bother thinking that through because there is a little bit, I think with any radical ideas that are marginal or whatever in a society... There is a bit of a tilt towards cultism, and you can see it in statements like that. Yeah. The idea that communism will solve everything, because then if you're trying to get people to do something they wouldn't otherwise morally do.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: They think, I'm doing something immoral now for the greater good. Yeah. And in fact, I then need to do the next step, next eight steps, say, yeah. because otherwise these bad things I've done won't be worth it and have meant anything until we get to the perfect blah blah And it's not even, and if you believe in a total systematizing
1: ideology, it's not even of a single system. It's not even for the greater good. It's to end all human suffering. Yeah. What would be, what could you do? that would be worth, what couldn't you do that would be worth such a cost? Oh, you'd do anything. You'd do anything to end all human suffering. It's like the ultimate...
0: If someone said, this human suffering now, or like killing yourself now, in the end will mean an end human suffering, you'd weigh that up and think, right, okay, yeah. that, that's the math calculation that's clear what I should do. And it's really, it's a, it's a very emotional and a
1: huge appeal to emotion that I think people find very compelling. And yeah, I, uh, it's, it's even just as feminists trying to talk to, to, to communists about and going, well, you know, but there is actually male dominance and there is actually something that complicates this. It's not, it is male chauvinism and, and they're, they're, they're kind of, Dismissal of feminism does, I think, come partially from sexism and misogyny, but underlying all of it is this refusal to believe that it couldn't be more than one system. Yeah. It couldn't be more than one solution. And I think that might even be the bigger impulse. And it also provides such a purpose um, and meaning to people's lives. When you have a when you have a meta-narrative.
0: I also think though, it's a way of saying I've got all of the the secrets and the knowledge and the way forward. Because feminists that I've met, some do the same. Oh,
1: completely. Completely.
0: I've had radical feminists say stuff to me like, we don't need anything but radical feminism. Yeah. Oh, so goodbye science. Goodbye maths. Goodbye psychology. <laughs> goodbye literature. Goodbye...
1: You know, a good majority of art. Goodbye, you know. Getting your car
0: fixed. Yeah, mechanics. But just this kind of idea that there could be one doctrine. Yeah. I've never thought that was even necessary to find the doctrine.
1: Oh, and, you know, men tie themselves in into, I mean, I know we were just talking about, but I do think it's a really male thing. They tie themselves into knots trying to make everything fit into one system. In many fields, they do this.
0: yeah whereas but i think that the other impulse that underlies it that i've come across in feminism is i want to be the keeper of the ideas right and that all these are the best ideas and this is what we need yeah. and if you say well it doesn't explain this or that you should just be able to say oh yeah but it's not meant to like there's a boundary to what feminism can explain yes and what it's su- poster before that's fine yeah you can't fix all the problems in the world it's funny because this is the argument we have all the time about intersectionality it's like mm. no feminism's not meant to be about climate change no. or racism or all these different things but it seems like at the same time there are some people who might say that but then they'd also say all we need is feminism it's like okay well then you're <laughs> but then you're also saying that you're not even going to look at anti-racism yeah or you're not going to think about the environment, or, or whatever it may be, yeah. There was a guy in my PhD department that was very both postmodernism friendly to to an extent, and very very Marx friendly, like real Marx. And he did his whole PhD on subsuming everything into production and consumption. Mm-hmm. And of course, my supervisor brought up care. Yeah, and he just. Couldn't answer, but he was really rude to her and just looked at her like, you stupid bitch, rather than going, oh, yeah, you're right. That is such
1: a, that is a very um, prototypical example of the way in which men do it. Because why would you consider care? It's not something that's in his
0: radar. You'll never have to care for anyone. You'll never have to care for a child or an elderly parent. And he was like a classic. He was a Mexican guy. He was Spanish with blue eyes and freckles Mm. who considered himself not white okay yeah so and he was so he's a member of the mexican elite yeah and that's why he was an international student doing a phd on Marx. right so yeah he but this thing of just like just accept like i'm a big fan of freud i think freud explains everything how could that possibly be yeah but people get really into it and people try and say oh no psychoanalysis is just um sociology is just psychoanalysis on mass No, it's not. No. No, it's not. These are different fields. They're all necessary. They're all worthwhile. They all explain different things. You can't have one vantage point. It's the grand vantage point and the great theory that explains everything. But it is. It's always searching for a universal theory. Yeah,
1: that's the word. But that's
0: when you get into universal justifications for things. That's right. And that's exactly what Pol Pot was about. And even after he was overthrown, he said oh you know everything i did i did for my country but the commanders that were put on trial did say oh you know i'm i'm plagued by it that i've i've ordered the executions of tens of thousands of people and organized that there has been recognition of mm. what happened and i just wonder how long it took the country to recover because if you kill everybody who's educated or skilled yeah. other than in farming rice, mm. it, this sets you back a long time. And I think it was the case that during the 1980s, I think that I kind of, it's hard to find out what happened during the 90s. I think the Vietnamese pretty much yeah. stuck around, overseeing things. And then it was occupied by the UN in the 90s in a humanitarian sense because they'd finally realised, oh, you were all killing each other. Mm. A decade late, stepped in. Mm. And And also
1: probably not super happy the Vietnamese were were so involved. Yeah.
0: yeah, And, uh, yeah, apparently today the apologists for the Khmer Rouge, when you try and talk about the atrocities, they say, oh, but Vietnam invaded and Vietnam is worse. And Vietnam apparently did take a bit of land to have like a buffer zone. Right. Or something like that. But there's just this distraction and derailing tactic.
1: The other thing that I think for listeners who don't come from a communist background is understated. There is this impression that, um, communists like communists and we all get along. Not the case. Vietnamese and Chinese had a big falling out. Obviously the USSR and the Chinese had a big falling out in the Sino Soviet split. Like Vietnam clearly wasn't very happy, but what was going on in Cambodia, the Cambodian so-called communists weren't very happy with them back. It's not the case that there was one big unified bloc.
0: And like any other government, once there is a so-called communist government or a real one, I don't think that it's that the that, that China initially backed the Khmer Rouge because they thought, oh, these seem like really great communists in our style of thinking. we will just been in their interests.
1: And they'll be thinking these are the people that oppose the US who are our
0: enemies. Yeah. This is this is how we win the Cold War. But it really yeah. is. Henry Kissinger's carpet bombing of Cambodia that just paved the way. I mean, in one day they took over, one day. I think it was April 6th or April 26th. I can't quite remember. Do you want to Google? Just put Khmer Rouge, April nineteen seventy five. 75.
1: April 17.
0: So April 17th, that was the day it started.
1: Well, that was the day they captured Phnom P- Pen.
0: Okay. Yeah. People who were to be sort of dehumanised in society, so again, teachers, postmen, the guy that does the book down at the bank, what anyone who's literate, they were called April 17th people. And it was a, a very similar process of dehumanisation to the Holocaust, apart from it was quick, in that people were given numbers, not names, when they were in the this kind of... Um, prison execution complex and basically it's it's sort of mad to think that people could do that to their own people of the same society but i think that it really was peasant versus worker yeah and the industrialized areas taken over by those from the deindustrial anyway i i just thought maybe uh, we've discussed it a bit but this thing of a cult taking over and branding itself as communist, I have seen some very talentless, small sects like that. Yeah. I'm glad they're talentless and small, but it doesn't surprise me that that can happen.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, it doesn't surprise me either.
0: And this idea of a perfect visionary and this perfect society, and you just need to do lots of bad things to get there and it'll be worth it, guys. Yeah. You know, was it Trotsky that said... The ends justify the. was it that means justify the ends as long as the ends justify the means
1: yeah
0: I thought I kind of agree with that Mm. the problem is you don't know no you can't really be sure because I don't think Pol Pot ever was really clear with people about what he wanted to do Mm. and for them in terms of peasants being the majority of society they were just like okay great we're going to be in power now But I suspect that people didn't necessarily know. But again, from April 17th, it was suddenly, well, these are the people who will be against us because they're not peasants. Round them up. yeah. Put them in prison. Oh, they're not very useful here. Put them in the work camps, essentially, the fields. And then the ones that are expendable, or just eventually, I think everyone would have been killed who was a, a worker or educated. yeah. (sighs) <sighs> anyway, really horrifying stories. If anyone, can, if anyone does go to Cambodia, do make sure to visit the Genocide Museum, which is housed in the former S21 prison torture place, former school, because they just closed the schools. All the, schools, all the school system collapsed, all the healthcare system collapsed for the entire uh, four or five years. The Khmer, Khmer Rouge were around. And also make sure to visit the killing fields. It's not far from the capital.
1: And for me, I think one of the headlines, aside from cultism and everything else, is that when a country or a region is destabilized through foreign intervention... One of the things that happens is the divides in that that region that already exists are exasperated and brought to
0: a boiling point. And exaggerated. So
1: the so the division between peasant and worker, the division between religious and irreligious, all of these things reach a boiling point often because people are so looking for a state to to have. It's better to have a state than to not have a state.
0: Well, this is why people often end up supporting dictators and not having democratic elections every so often it's because they're like i just want some stability yeah yeah that really seems to be whenever i've asked the explanation as to oh why don't they want a you know an election every four years people say well same in germany same in cambodia same in other places the explanation is people really liked the idea of a stable strong leadership yeah that was just gonna continue rather than this kind of constant upset and chaos that was going on and they hoped that they would bring stability of course doesn't my headline is like when a man comes along and says (laughs) i'm gonna create the perfect society be very fucking skeptical that was the thing as well that even the way that people took power it really was kind of a party grabbing it it wasn't just ordinary people. I mean, the Khmer mm. Rouge were big, but they weren't actually the majority of society in terms mm. of who signed up, you know. But then, of course, all political opposition was quashed. I think there's something as well, and I don't think it's a male thing, but I think it's a particular type of person thing, the majority mm. of who were men. This idea of state building, like, it is a bit of a thing of, like, world building, this idea that you can just construct a society and a world in your image... As much as it's fun to play like Sim City or talk about, oh, what would a perfect society look like? Cambodia is very small. So there's another reason I think he thought he could do it. Because actually a very, it's it's a small region. There's not that much there. A lot of it is jungle. And then there's like a couple cities and then like villages. So it also then seems plausible. Well, if I just take over here, take over here and there, Mm. it's done. Yeah but I think that even this is an interesting say conversation or thought experiment but I'm also very sort of not watchful but I'm yeah I'm perturbed by this idea even because things never go as planned in any in any area of life let alone when a small group of people decide to say we're going to just roll out our vision and impose it
1: I think so, but I do think that we should be able to try and imagine a world after capitalism, and if people do
0: have radical ideas about that, we shouldn't dismiss them out of hand. Of course, but the idea that you force those ideas on yeah. people, yeah, yeah, yeah this is the opposite of what has to happen for a society to really proceed in a good way in any way we could see as good, like people do have to be involved in that. it can't just be yeah enforced on everyone Mm. because it doesn't work and you have to that's literally why you have to kill everybody because you're like oh well these people don't agree with us i guess they just have to die Mm. and that seems to have happened you know Mm. very quickly there and yeah it's uh in one way i was surprised because i'd never come across something that was similar to the holocaust Mm. the holocaust was industrialized murder Mm. And so it was on a much more mass scale mm. and it was more countries than just one. Mm. So millions upon millions more people that were murdered. But in Cambodia, there was definitely um, a deindustrialized killing that was therefore not as fast. Yeah. So they could only murder in each of these fields hundreds of people a day. As opposed to thousands at one execution, a one death camp, they were basically death camps, though.
1: Yeah, that's what it sounds like.
0: Yeah. So yeah, if you do visit, it's a very beautiful country, but I would say try and stomach the the killing fields and the genocide museum. Yeah, I felt very genocided out after. I had to go back to the hotel and have a lie down. I bet. Well, there's just like because they've they've preserved it in this one place. I think some of. And I think as a way to sort of give dignity to the victims, they didn't just exhume all the bodies. They didn't want to disturb them. Mm. So this is partly why they rise, bits of them rise every so often. But they did also take some out. So there's just, at the end, they call it a stupor, but it's just a, it's a small, well, it's a thin building. It sort of looks like a temple.
1: Mm.
0: And it's just skulls all the way from the bottom to the top. Wow. And then you just look, they've got different stickers on them and then it says, you know, how they were killed or evidence of wrist tied, and just, and, and even this thing that they would put poison on the bodies after to try and make sure that everyone was indeed dead, but also to hide the smell mm. so that when new people went there, you didn't just immediately know it was going to happen, you couldn't revolt. Right. A lot of it was about, it was all done at night, So you couldn't even see after they took the blindfold off Mm -hmm. exactly what was going on till you were about to be killed. And then when they fled, they just said that like a local farmer came across it all. Wow. And then had to tell the authorities. And then it took years for people to sort of do the cleanup, basically.
1: Yeah. Don't invade sovereign countries and destroy the state because they make decisions that you disagree with that are against your national interests. I mean, I don't know how many times we have to learn this lesson in history. Yeah. Uh, you can't just, I understand that capitalism is a very unstable system and that we need constant war to fund it, but there is actually a price on human life. Yeah. And this is exactly what's happen- happened to the Middle East. It's, and it's what would have happened in a place like Vietnam if they had won. It's what, it's what the U.S. would do to the entire world if it would make them more money. Sorry, but... Or sustain their... The only only thing being produced in the United States that is profitable are weapons. Most of the factories have closed down. The only factories that haven't are weapons production companies. This is just the constant need for war to fund their unstable economic system. They couldn't let an irrelevant country in Southeast Asia be communist. They had to destroy the entire region.
0: It's also that Vietnam is on the coast yeah so if you control that area of coastline between communist china and indonesia that had a lot of communists in it yeah it is very advantageous
1: yeah if if,
0: to oppose communism yeah if you could get that very slim strip of land Mm. down the end yeah so yes well thank you for listening thank you And a non-genocidal subject next week. Yeah, we'll
1: pick something a bit lighter. We do a Harry and Meghan.
0: (laughs) Some pop culture. Yeah, something like that. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.